Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Jeff Hayden. Jeff is a author, writer, ghostwriter, speaker, LinkedIn influencer, and an Inc. Magazine contributing editor. His online articles on Inc. have attracted more than 20 million readers. He's the author of several books, which include The Motivation Myth, How High Achievers Set Themselves Up to Win. Jeff, can you tell me a little bit about your background and the work you do and how you got into it? Oh, what a boring question. Or not a boring question, but my answer won't be that exciting. Uh, I worked in manufacturing for about 20 years. I worked my way through college at a manufacturing plant. And when I graduated, I interviewed for jobs that all seemed like they were with 40-year-old men working in cubicles, which now I would love to be a 40-year-old man, but at the time that seemed like the kiss of death. And so I got a job at another manufacturing plant in town that had just started up. Turned out it was with R.R. Donnelly. They're the world's largest commercial printers. And my goal was to work my way up from the bottom and someday run a plant. And 17 years later, I was running a plant. And three years after that, I looked around and thought, I do not want to do this for another 25 years. Um, it's interesting how what you, what you think a job will be and what the job actually turns out to be are often two different things. Um, and so I was... I would characterize it that I was discussing my frustration with my job. My wife would say I was whining about it. Uh, and she finally said, you know, if you're going to keep complaining, then you need to do something different. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I said, you know, I've always wanted to write, even though I had never written professionally or personally. The only writing I did was for work. Um, but I thought I would try to do that. And so I'll short circuit or I'll shorten the story greatly. Uh, but I started taking on writing projects at nights and weekends and kept my full-time job and plugged away. And I was a ghostwriter, so I wrote books for other people uh, and they put their names on them basically, but I wrote a lot of other stuff too. Um, and kind of chugged my way along. And so now I, I'm a contributing editor for Inc. Magazine and I still ghostwrite and I have a book of my own and I've ghostwritten, I think I'm up to about 60 books now at this point. Um, and I do some speaking and lots of other stuff. And so it's a completely different career, but it's funny how that works out because if you project forward and try to craft your path, oftentimes it's really hard to do. But when you look back at what seem like random events or little jumps that you've made, you turn those into dots that all connect. And so my business background helped me immensely with writing because most of the stuff that I wrote was business management, leadership, entrepreneurship, things like that. And so when I talked to people and talked to clients, they didn't, I wasn't a writer that they had to teach about their subject. I actually understood in large part the subject as well. And so that made that process much quicker. And then I could add value to it myself. And so while I didn't plan to be a writer and get there by working in business for a long time, that is how it worked out. I think this is absolutely fascinating. I, I want to decompact some of this. I think that's a word. Sure. Is now. Yeah. The first thing I wanted to talk about was this disconnection between your first major, major career where you thought you wanted to work at this plant and move your way up, and you did, 
because you thought that there was, I'm assuming that you thought there was, there was something that you would get or something that you would feel or something that you would experience by moving your way up. And so you, you went through this process and got to the top of the hill, got to the top of the mountain and then found out when you looked around, it wasn't the view that you thought it, thought it was going to have or felt like it was going to have. And so I'm curious if you can remember when you first started out, what drove you or what motivated you down that path? And then when you got there, what made you feel disconnected or what was the disconnection? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, part of it was, you know, I just, I don't know if you're going to do something, then you might as well do it at the highest level because why not? And so that was part of it. But the other part was, you know, I, I worked by the time that I left that plant, there were over a thousand people there, lots of supervisors, lots of managers, lots of layers. And it is very common for people at lower levels of an organization to look upwards and think I could do your job better. That I, I think we all tend to think that at some point. And so <clears throat> I would look at people and say, you know, if I was in that job, I would be able to do better than you, or I would be able to whatever. And so part of the motivation was just, I wanted to prove to myself that I had the skills and the ability and the talent that I thought that I had. And part of it was that, you know, I started there as a college boy, quote unquote, and that was an interesting uh, situation in itself. Um, and I wanted to prove to people that I could do the shop floor labor just as well as anybody else, but then I could also transition into a management role, which, you know, there was a, there was a little bit of stigma that came with that as well, because, you know, Usually the people at top levels of organizations tend to have gone to big schools and have MBAs and all this other stuff. And, you know, I was the shop floor guy who was comfortable getting dirty. And so there was a little bit of a stigma there, too. So if you add all that up, partly it was ambition, but partly it was I wanted to prove to myself that I could actually do that. And I thought that it would be really fun, to be honest. Um, and it was for a while. But probably the biggest turning point is that I realized Let's pretend that you walked into my office. You worked for me and you walked into my office. Within a second and a half of you, I mean, I'm sorry, a sentence and a half of you talking, I would know what we were going to talk about, how I was going to respond, how you were going to respond, and how this entire 20 minute conversation would go. But yet we had to go through that 20 minute conversation because I needed to listen to you, I needed to empathize, I needed to feel your pain. You know, I needed to work through all that stuff. And I'm not downplaying that at all. This is all a criticism of myself. Um, I knew all of that when what I really wanted to say to you was, Chris, you and Mark just need to get along. Now go do your job. <laughs> that's what I really wanted to say. And so I, at one point I took a step back and said, okay, if that's the point that I've reached on the leadership side of this, where those conversations are, are actually frustrating and irritating and, and seem like a waste of my time, that I'm definitely not serving the people that I am supposed to lead particularly well. And clearly I'm not happy with what I'm doing and I need to do something else. So that disconnect was, I realized I wasn't happy. And then I also realized that there were people that were looking to me for a level of leadership that I was providing, but I was having to force myself to provide as opposed to doing it naturally. And that's not the best way to be a leader, obviously. What I found fascinating about this thing that we've been talking about is that I think when I was younger, I definitely did things that were very similar. And, and I hear in you that you were ambitious, right? You wanted to move up in society. You wanted to increase your status, your income. Um, but you also wanted both a level of 
internal and external validation that you didn't have. And so you started pursuing these things and you did well. You like, I mean, I think that's a great point. If you're going to do something, why not do it to the best of your ability? Um, but it sounds like later in life, as you've made choices, you've done it with an increased level of awareness. Yes. Yeah, that would, that's true. I, it's, you're giving me probably more credit than I deserve, but I do think at a basic level um, that that is true. Um, I think we're all ambitious in some fashion, and we all want to prove things to ourselves, and to ourselves, and I think that's important. Um, but part of my problem also, and we can talk about this later if you want to, is that because I grew up at a time where the paradigm was still – you know, you find a job with a big company and you work your way up in that company. And as long as you're doing a great job, the company will take care of you. That was the paradigm then. I know that sounds foreign, but at the time that was it. And because my working life had all been in this one industry and this one kind of venue, that was the only path that I thought was available to me. So I was just going to kick ass on that path. And it took me much longer than it should have to realize that there are all kinds of other options. I could have either worked for another company or I could have started my own business, which I eventually did. But I didn't even consider those things because this was the only path I knew. And, you know, that that if I had anything to do over again, it would have been for me to realize that there were other paths open to me. And if you're willing to work hard and do your best and sacrifice and put the effort in, you could do all sorts of stuff, but I thought this was the only thing that I could do. Plus, I had the old, you know, I didn't realize that my career was a really a sunk cost. I'd spent a lot of time at that and I put a lot of effort into it. And so you look around and think, okay, if I'm going to go do something different, I just wasted all those years. Well, that's not true because all of the stuff that I learned, I brought with me to what I did next, even though it didn't seem like that was how it was going to work out. Um, and I think that's true as well. So there's a lot of factors for that. And, and hopefully I didn't give you more that you feel like you have to unpack. But if I was going to get any message across to people, it's that you are capable of doing a lot more than you think. And you don't have to stay on this same path just because you started on that path. You'll bring all the stuff that you've learned along the way with you and it will inform what you do and whatever you choose to do next. That's a great point. When you talked about looking back at your life at a series of random events and then when we reflect back, they look like dots right that you can connect i thought about steve jobs speech at stanford yeah well I, and then the, there's a there's this documentary about the eagles the band and joe walsh is talking about it's a funny it's a good movie or it's a good documentary but it's also funny joe walsh talks about how you know as you're living your life it seems like this chaotic random series of events but when you look back it looks like a finely crafted novel or something um, and it's probably the only coherent thing he says in the whole documentary although i do love joe but that is true and i think it's because you don't know what the future holds but if when things happen you say okay this is where i am how can i do the best i can with this what can i make of this then it's not fate. You make your own fate, I think. But if you do the best you can with whatever occurs, when you look back, you can say, you know what, that happened for a reason. What well, didn't really happen for a reason, but you made a reason out of it by accepting what happened and saying, okay, how can I do the best I can with this? Yeah, I agree. I think it's part, I remember talking to a literature professor of mine in college. I can't remember if it was in class or out of class, but I remember talking to her about this. And she was saying that this is, when we look back, this is how we construct 
narrative and we derive meaning from it. But I think it's really interesting. And if, if yeah, you can't predict a meaning, but you can look back and construct one and you make that meaning by taking action as opposed to waiting passively for something else to happen to you. I also like the second half of your story where you talk about you thought you wanted to write and then you went through this process of it sounds like taking classes and then writing. Oh, no. oh you didn't oh, no. take classes. Oh, no. What happened is I was I said I wanted to write and I, I thought about that and then time passed and I hadn't done anything and my wife got tired of that, too. My life is instrumental in many of the better parts of my career, <laughs> as opposed and as as well as lots of other stuff, too. But one day she came home and said, you know, you haven't done anything with this. So I got you your first writing job. And she had she had run into a guy who had a startup who needed a press release. This is back when press releases you know, still had some impact. And so I had never written a press release, didn't even had no clue. And so it's probably the worst paying per hour writing job that I've ever done. Because it took me forever to write this thing and feel halfway good about it. Um, and I, I made the princely sum of $50, I think, or something like that. And so I gave it, you know, I gave it to him and, you know, cringed the whole time thinking, oh, this is terrible. He's going to hate it and all this stuff. And he liked it. And he hired me to do a few other things. Um, but I just started. I didn't go to school and I didn't take any classes and I didn't, you know, I just started. And so where I got a lot of my first projects was on a site. It was called Elance. Now I think it's Upwork. I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but it's one of the, is that right? Is it Upwork now? I, I think it is. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, but it's a place where you, you're a, free, a freelancer and someone has a job and you bid on it and you say what you can do. And so what I would do to get past the credentials and qualifications thing is that I would just say, look, I knew I don't have very many uh, reviews here. So here's what I'll do. Here's my price. You don't pay me up front. You only pay me if you're happy. If I give it to you and you don't like it, then don't pay me. We'll just move on. And so that was my way to get past that hesitation of people saying, hmm, do I want to try this guy out or not? Because there was no risk to them. And I was okay with that because I still had my full-time job. It was still making a very good living. And so all I was really spending was time, which I know is a valuable commodity. But if you're trying to start something new, you have to invest something. And time was my investment. And so that got me past that hurdle and it got me experience and it got me, it gave me a feel for what clients were looking for. It let me work on my writing chops, you know, all of that stuff. Um, so no, I didn't take any classes or do anything else like that. I just said, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to start. And I found a way also through my wife because she's the one that set up my account on Elance and the first few jobs that I got, she actually wrote the bid proposals for because I kept, I kept whining about the fact that I wanted to write but wasn't sure what to do. And her idea was, you know, action, action creates experience and action creates talent. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to make you act on this and let's see what happens. And so that's how I got started with that. And I, I think it's a great way to do, just about anything. There's the idea that you have to be ready before you start. And I think if you're willing and you're willing to work hard and try, then you can start a lot sooner than you think you're ready, especially if you're smart about how you do it. I think that's an absolutely great point and it's a great story and exemplifies a lot of really wonderful things that I think the listeners will find useful. I'm, I'm curious. You said I, you... Can I make one more point? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The, the thing that People struggle with also if you, you know, say you want a side hustle or you want to do something different or you want to kind of ease your way into a new career or a new path. There's this idea that 
yeah, but it's not worth my time to do that unless it pays me the same as I'm making here. Well, there was no way anyone was going to pay me anything close to, if you break it down to an hourly rate, what I was making running a plant. That just wasn't going to happen. And I didn't deserve it because I was not as good at writing as I was at writing a plant. And so I just looked at it as, okay, I'm a, new, I'm a newbie, I'm a beginner, I have no skill, no talent, no nothing to show people, so this is what I'm worth. And if you accept that and embrace it, then you can get past that idea of, oh, okay, this is beneath me, or I'm too good for this, or whatever else it is. And you can just focus on doing the work, which is what you need to do in order to become someone someday that can command what you think you're worth. You know, what you think you're worth and what you're actually worth are often two very different things. And if you can just kind of let go of the ego part of it and say, hey, I'm new, I'm starting over at this and, you know, I'll take a part time job or I'll go work here for very little money or I'll do side jobs for almost nothing because that's going to build me into what I would like to become. Then that's how you can be successful. But if you think you just, if you think you have to wait until someone will pay me, pay you what you think you're worth, you're going to wait a really, really long time. I was, I was laughing as you're, you're answering this question or, or, or sharing your additional insights because when I first started doing what I'm doing now, I mean, I've been doing this for ten years. But when I first started, I put ads on Craigslist. I was charging people 150 bucks to take them out for the night, basically. Uh, the ad said like, I'll take you out, teach you how to meet people. And if you don't learn anything, you can have your money back. And yeah, it was 150 bucks. I'd meet them at 9 PM, be out to like four in the morning. I was in college at the time and this is going to crap some people out. But like now if somebody wants to work with me in that same type of basis, the sessions are two and a half hours. It's a thousand dollars. Um, they have to prepay 10, 20 or 30 sessions. So it's tens of thousands of dollars and a lot less time, <laughs> but, but there's things that like I'm able to pick up now in seconds that I would have never seen before. Sure. And so people pay that money because I'm arguably because the best. Provide that, yeah, because you provide I, that value. Yeah. I'm arguably the best in the world at what I do. So I, it's really funny. Um, yeah, but, but you could not have started that way. Oh, there's no way. There is no how. reason that someone was going to do that. And let's, let's even imagine that you were exactly the same person then that you are now. <laughs> the fact that you had not done this and didn't have the background and the credentials and all of the credibility that you currently have, that still would have been a problem and you could not have charged the same thing. So you have to work your way up both in terms of skill and in terms of your presence in the market and your credibility. It's how it works. And if you embrace that and say, yeah, I'm going to do that, you'll actually end up in an even better place because you will have done the work that makes you really, really good. And along the way, you'll have made connections and all kinds of other stuff that also adds value to what you do. So you just have to step back and say, I am a beginner. I'm going to act that way because I see a path that I'm going to follow that will take me to where I want to be. Yeah. I think along the same, the same lines of thought, I, have been using a, a video game example recently <laughs> with some of the guys on my team and, and, uh, there's this game Zelda and in Zelda, you start off and you, it's an adventure game. You don't really have any clothes. Like you don't have a sword. You don't have like really anything. And you're really limited at what you can do. And if you go too far away from your home base, like a bigger, stronger monster will kill you. And so what happens is you slowly do things like, gain experience you gain uh health capacity and stamina and you get armor and 
and uh, you get a weapon and throughout the game you continue to improve that and what happens is as you do that you have more capacity the capacity to do more to take on bigger challenges to like climb bigger mountains or take on bigger bosses and like and I use that example because my team is a lot of them are younger than I am and they can resonate with it because a lot of them will play video games in their off time but oh it's perfect because that that is how it works you have to build up all of that stuff in order to be you know, able to fight the biggest boss, for instance. You don't get to jump right to the end unless you have a cheat code, but there are no cheat codes in life that I'm aware of. It's tough, right? Like, I mean, even if somebody thinks there's a cheat code, they're like, well, this person went to X college because they knew somebody or their family's wealthy and so they're placed at the top of a hierarchy, right? They come in and they're able to like um, start off as a junior executive and run the business. Even if they, they get advantages that other people don't, they still have to put in the work. Otherwise, things fall apart. And there's lots of people who generate, in the, in the example of business, people who generate wealth and the second generation doesn't put in the work. They don't have the capacities and the whole thing falls to shit. And so um, I'm using the, the financial example, but this can also happen in an emotional context. It can happen in an intellectual context, right? Somebody's just like smoking weed every day and not developing themselves. And then, uh, I mean, time goes by and an opportunity pop, pops up and they're not ready for the opportunity. And so even if they step into it, they fail, right? And and sometimes those failures we carry around for a long time, whether on an internal basis or on an external basis. I, I had a question. You well, met- that's a really good point if I can interrupt. Absolutely. I, I'm lucky enough in what I do that I, I get to meet and interview lots of really, really successful people. And I can't point to one of them that was anything close to an overnight success that in any way, shape or form hacked their way to success, so to speak. They all, they have done incredible things but they're just like me and you. They have just worked really, really, really hard and really long and really smart at gaining some skill or ability or talent or whatever it is that causes them to be exceptional. But it's all work. They're not a single one of them had some magic lucky stroke. Yeah, lucky things have happened, but that's because they put themselves into positions where lucky things could happen. And then they were talented enough to seize the opportunity when it got there. But that idea of, you know, I can hack my way to success and I'm just waiting for that right shortcut to appear. You'll wait forever. But if you work hard, you'll find quote unquote shortcuts that you create because you've gotten so good that whatever it is you're doing is now pretty easy for you. And that's that's that other side of it. Like you said, you can spot things like in seconds that you never would have noticed before. Well, there's a huge value to that and there's an efficiency to that. But that came from the effort that you put into it. Yeah, it's craft. Yep. And you don't you don't you don't develop craft by hacking or shortcutting. Craft is hours and hours and hours of skill. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I, I want to go back and ask a couple other questions and then I want to move on to some of the other questions I had for you and what you were saying about your observations about some of the experts that you've worked with. You mentioned that you made fifty dollars for that first press release. How many how many hours did it take you to do it? Uh, it was like seven, I believe. Yeah, it was forever. And now we're talking, we're talking five paragraphs. <laughs> and how did you do the research? Like, what was that process? Like I just, I knew what he wanted to say. He gave me that just in general terms. So I knew that I knew the outcome. And then I just kept, I looked up this, I found as many press releases as I could. 
I tried to figure out the style, you know, because there was a formula to it. Um, and he wanted to stick pretty close to that. And so I tried to figure out the style and then I tried to like incorporate what he wanted to say within that. And it was almost like I created a template of sorts. And then I got done with that. and It was really stiff and really dry and seemed really boring. And I thought, wow, I, okay, this is fine, but you know, I don't love it and I wouldn't want to put it out under my name. So heaven forbid, I give it to somebody else. And so then I started reworking and refining and trying to find a way to make it more interesting and trying to give this press release like a story arc. I mean, I kind of went crazy, um, but in a good way and got to the other end of it and felt really good about it. But it, I, I must have rewritten certain sentences like dozens of times. Did you float it around other people, like, for example, your wife before you, you forwarded it? Nope. No, I, I decided that. If I wasn't, because I had read press releases before and I, you know, I've read, a, I had, I love to read and I had read a lot of stuff just in general. And I think that's really important for a writer is also to be a reader. Um, but I just, I decided that if I wouldn't want to put it out under my name, then it wasn't ready yet. And so, and then I went a little past, like I started refining even more and then I would look and say, okay, that didn't make it better and I would get rid of it. And after I did that five or six times, I thought, okay, if I'm no longer able to improve this, then I must be at a really good spot. Sometimes with things that are creatively based, you almost have to go past what you think is finished to verify that you are not able to improve it a little bit more. Um, and so that's what I did. But I, I used myself as the arbiter of that. And whether that was the right or the wrong thing to do, it worked out. And that's basically how I've approached it um, ever since. I give stuff to clients when I think it's right. And then I let their feedback tell me what we need to change or if we need to change. And I adapt from that. And I've been doing it long enough now that I have a pretty good sense of that. And I can, like, if I'm writing for you, which I don't, but if I was, then I'm pretty good at figuring out pretty quickly what you're looking for and what will make you happy. Um, but I just use myself as the arbiter because I'm, I'm easily my worst critic and I'm easy, I'm definitely harder on what I do than other people are. And so I didn't really want to go out and have somebody say, oh yeah, that's really good just to be nice to me or someone that didn't really know what they should even be looking for. So I just decided I, since I'm so hard on myself, I'll just be hard on myself. Yeah. I feel like some people some people that's an advantage because they do they force themselves to put something together that they think they feel really good about and other people are so critical they never get anything out so why do you think you're able to actually get it out do you think it's like the social component that your wife set this up and it was <laughs> like what well i had to come through but i also had and this is another advantage of my prior career in manufacturing you know, quality matters, but productivity is everything. And so I, I had spent years and years and years on the idea of you've got to be good, you've got to be fast and you've got to be done. And so that was also helpful because I knew I had to finish. I knew I couldn't sit there with it forever because there is a, a natural timeline involved when it is for someone else. Um, and so that really helped as well. I've heard the same thing around art, right? There's a lot of people get into art and they, they sort of refine and refine and refine and refine and and people who I know who are productive artists are say like a big part of it is the deadlines is being able to meet the deadlines to produce and that it's never perfect but being able to produce on deadline 
Um, well, it depends on your it depends on your outcome because if you're just let's pretend you're painting if you're just painting for yourself you can be as a, as self indulgent as you wish to be because it is just for you so you can spend the rest of your life on that but when you are doing it for someone else or you're doing it because this is how you make a living and shipping things quote unquote is what generates revenue then you have to strip away the self-indulgent side. And I think that that quest for perfection is often just being self-indulgent and saying, you know, well, I want to do this and I want to do that. And, you know, it's all about me. But if you, so that's, that's one of the barometers I use for whether I'm done with something or if something can be improved. If there's anything that's self-indulgent in there, if there's anything that I put in it just because it like is clever, it might make me look more intelligent or cooler or whatever else it might be, then that definitely has to come out because nobody needs that and I don't need that. Um, but the self-indulgent thing I think is a big thing where creativity is concerned or where any work is concerned. There's an expectation, there's an outcome, there's a deliverable, do the best that you can, make sure you hit those things and then you need to let it go and you need to move on to something else. Cause there will always be something else and life is all about whatever is next not whatever you're currently doing for the rest of your life. I have one more question then I want to move on to the next set of questions. Uh, it's one more personal question. You talked about this wife of yours, right? And when we get into relationships, we choose our partners, our partners choose us. But it sounds like your wife has been very instrumental in the successes that you've had. Yes. What was it about? I mean, I forget exactly what you said earlier, but um some of her words of encouragement were like quite <laughs> profound from a partner. And so what was it that you made you choose her as a partner and, and how has that affected your life's path? All right. So if we forget beauty and charm and, <laughs> and all of the other stuff, and if we're just talking about that, that side of changing careers and productivity and stuff, my wife is easily the most, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it driven, but she's focused and productive. So other people would see it as driven, but she doesn't like, she's not super intense. She's just super productive. And so she, I'm not making this up. She has, what does she have? Two undergrad degrees. She's finishing her third master's and she has a doctorate uh, and she is a doctor. Um, and she would love to get a law degree someday. And I don't know why she, but school is her hobby. Um, but she also, you know, we've raised kids. Uh, we own real estate, like rental properties and investment properties and stuff like that. She just loves to work and she loves to do better at whatever it is she's doing. And so part of it is that rubs off on you. you it is hard to sit around and be a slug when the person you live with is accomplishing at such a high level and doing it in a very graceful and kind of fun way, to be honest. Um, so that really helped. But she has a really good ability to strip away the clutter when you're looking at something and just say, okay, what's essential to this? What absolutely has to happen in order to get to where you want to go? And let's just focus on those things. And I think a lot of people get wrapped up in, well, let's take real estate. Say you want to buy a house and turn it into a rental property. You can sit around forever and analyze that and think about downsides and wonder if you have the experience and the knowledge and all that other kind of stuff. Or you could just look at it and say, okay, let's look at this financially. What's the investment? What's the return? Let's throw a few sensitivities into this. Does this make sense? If it's yes, 
cool. If it's no, then you look at another one. And that's how she, I wouldn't say taught, but basically, yeah, she's kind of taught me to look at whatever I'm doing using that kind of a yardstick. So, you know, I published my own book this year. Um, I could have self-published it because I, I did one of those where I just collected a bunch of columns and put it together and it did incredibly well with no marketing. So I could have self-published and done well, but I thought about going through a regular publisher. And so we just looked at that very simply. What are the benefits? What are the quote unquote costs? And what does this do for me? And it turned out to be a fairly simple answer as opposed to spending months pouring over all this detail and stuff. So I didn't necessarily look for someone who was good at those things. I'm really glad that I found someone who is good at all those things. Um, and yeah, she's turned out to be, I mean, we have a great relationship, but she's also the best business partner that I could ever imagine, which if you think about it, a marriage, especially it is a business, not that you should marry only for business, but the business aspect of your marriage oftentimes plays a big role in whether or not you are happy because you know, a little bit of financial success, you don't have to be rich, but if you have enough money that you can make choices and that you have some amount of freedom to make choices, that's a huge thing in terms of making your relationship better because you're not always worried about money and you can actually be together. Did you see these qualities in her when, when you proposed to her or did, is this stuff that you picked up later on? I think I, I, I knew that she was, how do I say this? You know, it's funny. That's been a long time. Um, I was probably, I would say that I was more in love with her than I was in love with some of the things that I just talked about, if that makes sense. But I could also tell that there was a, a practical side and a realistic side and a, a down to earth side that was going to make the business part, quote unquote, of our relationship, a very good one as well. Um, you know, I have friends that have gotten married to people that they loved in a certain way, but then there were parts of the relationship that are more practical that turned out to be a disaster. And that negatively impacted the rest of the relationship and they kind of couldn't get past that. So I don't think I was smart enough to realize that that was going to be as important as it was, but looking back, I'm glad that that's how it turned out to be. Um, and if I was giving people advice, it would be, you have to factor that in as well, because you're not just going to love the person, you're also going to live with and operate with that person. And that side of it needs to work too. Dating coach Chris Thoney here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Christmas Live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows, attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Christmas team. 
Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. How old were you? That's my, my first question. How old were you and how old is she when you guys proposed and got married? And then you said you had some examples of some friends who made the wrong choices. Can you give us an idea of, of what some of those things are so people listening to this won't hopefully make the same type of mistakes? Uh, the biggest one on the friend side, and then I'll get back to me, the friend side was, you know, there were the fun parts of the relationship were great. But then, like one of my friends, male, is he was very focused on, you know, want a house, want to create some savings, want to create a, a nest egg, you know, wants to build a family that way. Um, and his partner, I don't know, the word budget was like, you know, she would hold up her fingers as if it was a cross, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> and if there were checks in the checkbook, that meant you could spend money. And I know that sounds terrible and stereotypical, but that was basically the approach, and that didn't mix us at all. Then I had another friend who was the opposite. He never found a dollar he couldn't spend on something that didn't actually generate any return. And he married a, a very nice woman who, you know, was trying to build a career and again, trying to create a family and families cost money. And that fell apart because he could never stop and say, you know, it probably would make my life better if I actually didn't spend the rent money, <laughs> you know? Um, so those are really trite examples, but you can, you can look at those things and think, okay, I love you, but 20 years from now, will we be able to live the way that I would like us to live? And for some people that just means, that they never want to go to the more conservative, you know, traditional picket fence way, that they want to live a life where it's like, okay, we will always rent, we'll move periodically, we're gonna do a lot of traveling, we're gonna put our money into those kinds of things because we're more into experiences than possessions, which is awesome. You just need to be in sync with that stuff because eventually the bloom at least partly fades from every rose and then if the substance underneath is really strong and it works for both of you, then I think your relationship is actually better than it was back when the bloom was definitely on the rose. Because now it's based on we built a life together, not just that we enjoy being together. And, and about how old were you guys when you met? Uh, I was 36 and she was 25. So not only did I, I marry smart and intelligent and beautiful, but younger too. I'm like the I'm like the super factor. Well, <laughs> well, I, the the reason why I was curious is because you mentioned that you sort of could maybe sense some of these things, and if you were to take a a boat and you move it like it was positioned maybe a couple degrees off, and you go far enough distance, it ends up in a completely different place. And like, and I think when we start relationships, when when we sense sort of people are moving or leaning in a certain trajectory over time those trajectories can put those people into very, very different places. And so uh, um, when we're younger, oftentimes these these things are, are small. But as time compounds, in the example of your wife, you're talking about all these degrees and sort of these other things that she's accomplished, raising children, like she was leaning towards certain things. And over time, it put her into a different place in a lot of ways. And, and so that was sort of what I was getting at because I think... Yeah. If you, yeah. The, other, the other cool side of that is that you can start in slightly different directions as long as you respect the other person and what they bring. 
then you can find that those directions actually complement each other and bring it closer together. So like in our case, she was, you know, that, that I gave you that description of how she can boil something down to its essence and make a decision really quickly. Sometimes that decision can be too quick. And I tend to be a little more, not thoughtful, but I tend to analyze a little bit more. And so we've come to a place now where like if she looks at something, she'll do her quick assessment and say, all right, I feel good about this and I think this is the right way to go. You take a look and see what I'm missing. And then I'll do a little bit more analysis and we come together in the middle and it usually works out really, really well. And I respect the fact that she can cut through the clutter really fast and, and come to a 90% good decision. And she respects the fact that I can look at it a little bit longer and pick up maybe a few things she didn't and at least give us food for thought before we decide to act. But that starts with, you know, you have to respect what the other person does or is good at that you are not. And as long as they respect that in return, then you can actually complement each other really well. And the sum is greater than the parts. Um, but you have to be willing to say, okay, just because you do it that way doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's your way. And there's a lot of good to that. And what can I learn from that? And then if you get that in return, then things are great. I think it's awesome. I mean, this idea of you value somebody's differences as opposed to it's oftentimes instinctive. Our ego kicks in and we think people need to do that, do things the way that we do them. And I think that's a really great, a great point. There's, there's a little stupid stuff. Since we're talking about relationships, like I'm, I'm, much, I wouldn't say cleaner, but neater, if that makes sense. Like I like to put things away and I like, I like very little clutter and very little stuff out. I, I was raised that everything has a place and if you moved it, it better go back to its place. And I kind of still do that. And my life is much less that way. And so in the morning, since my office is my backpack and I work from home, you know, she leaves and I'll spend the first few minutes. It only takes a couple just kind of straightening up really quickly and putting things away that might not have been away because it makes me feel better the rest of the day. I don't resent it. It's fine. It's cool. And off we go. And so if you if I thought that she needed to be just like me, we would end up having a big problem over something that's really, really small. But I just decided, OK, this it matters to me. Doesn't matter to her. That's cool. I'll spend a couple minutes straightening up. I feel good the rest of the day. If I walk by, I don't think, wow, why is that blanket laying over there? My day is better. It cost me two minutes and a little thing doesn't matter. It doesn't become a big thing. So I think that's a huge part of it too. When you said that the other person doesn't have to be like you, that's exactly right. And, and hopefully you didn't marry somebody exactly right like you or, or you're not in a relationship with somebody exactly like you because how boring would that be? I would hate to be in a relationship with me. Did you recognize like immediately that this was valuable or is this something that took no, some time to, to work out? I had, to, I had to figure that out. <laughs> how, how long did it take? And like, what was, what was that? Process? Oh, it was a few, it was a few years, <laughs> you know, because I would turn it into, it's really easy to turn that stuff into somehow it's personal to you. So like if I had straightened up and then I said, you know, I really would appreciate it if you straightened up or if I said to the kids, I really would appreciate it if you put your stuff away, you know, cause it makes me feel, you know, crappy that I have to do it all the time. It, it can start to feel like they're doing it just to spite you or that they don't care about your feelings. And neither of those things are true. It's just that that's not how they are. And I can spend the rest of my life trying to change it. Or I can say, does this really matter? And the answer is no. And I can take care of it and make myself feel better about it in two minutes. 
So why wouldn't I just do that and move on? Because I am sure there are things that I do that the other people in my house have to accommodate or have to deal with. And they don't complain about that. And so if we all just kind of accept a few of those things and move on, then it's great. But it did take me a little while to get to that because for a while it feels personal and it really isn't. And if you can take the personal out and just look at it objectively, then a lot of that stuff that affects your feelings, it just kind of goes away. And I would like to say I was mature enough to know that instantly, but I wasn't. I mean, it's really insightful for a guy who's listening to this or even a girl who's listening to this and they're trying to, maybe they're getting in their first relationship or will soon be getting into their first relationship or maybe they're trying to get into their first healthy relationship. I think these insights for them will be pretty profound. So thank you so much. Well, it's funny. I was at the gym the other day and I was working out at this gym at a university. And so there were, there were two young ladies that were nearby they were talking really loud i couldn't help it over here and they were talking about one of them was upset with her boyfriend and she kept saying things like you know if he would just realize that he needs to do this and if he would just realize that he needs to act that way and she kept going on and on and at one point i, I couldn't help it but i kind of like laughed to myself <laughs> and one of them looked at me and said you know what are you laughing about and i said i'm, I'm sorry and I, I tried to just shrug it off and she said no you know they were nice about it but she said you know, obviously you can hear what we're saying because we're so loud. You know, what do you think? And I said, well, if you're saying if he would only realize he needs to do these things, you're expecting him to be exactly what you want him to be. And he just is what he is. And so you have to decide, do I like this person in total? And can I accept that a few things are perfect, but the whole is awesome? Or, you know, can I not? But you sitting there thinking that somehow you're going to come up with all these different ways that you're going to try to shape his behavior, ah, you're wasting your time and there's other people out there. Um, and they both looked at me like I was crazy, but I thought, you know, well, I'm old, <laughs> you know, and people don't, people don't change that way. And it's not worth it for you to try to change them. And besides that, who are you to think that you should change other people? You know, are you perfect? Well, of course not. And so you're much better off just looking and saying, you know, what on, what on the whole, do I like this or not? Is this right for me or not? And if it isn't, well, if it isn't now, it's not going to be five years from now either in all likelihood. And so, you know, find someone else. You know, just because you are in the relationship doesn't mean you have to stay in the relationship forever. There are other people. You found this one and you will find another one. But if you find someone that 99% of it is awesome and there are just one or two things that bug you once in a while, Accept the fact that those one or two things you just need to get over because the 99% is great and that's worth hanging on to. It made me laugh. We had, we had this girl who was a stylist for us years ago and would help guys get dressed, take them shopping. And, and she told me one time we were talking about partners and, and I said, what are you looking for? And she, she, we were at her place. She goes into her room, comes back. It has a list of like a hundred things on like a yellow, <laughs> yellow pad, and and one of the 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 things that I remember, like uh, remember the clearest is she goes, I want somebody who has good style, and I stopped <laughs> her and I said, I don't even know what that means. You don't want somebody with good style. You want somebody who has your style. Right. And then she you started, she, yeah, she started style. laughing, but like th this is exactly what we're talking about. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah, as time, it's funny as time goes by, and I, I guess. I, I would not have realized this when I was young, but there are so many things that really don't matter. And you think they matter at one point, but they really don't. What matters is, does the person care for you and respect you 
and treat you well and treat you as a partner and some of those high level things. And if you have those, the nitty gritty things, they really don't matter. And sometimes you can find someone where the nitty gritty things all seem compatible, but then the bigger stuff isn't there. So what would you rather have the big stuff or the little stuff? I think it's a, that's a great point. You were talking earlier about experts and you said that they, in your experience that they work hard, they work long, they work smart and in the process they become exceptional. And so what are some of the things that you have noticed about working with people who are really great at what they do that they seem to have in common? Wow. Um, I would say the biggest is that they focus on not necessarily some tangible goal at the end, but on the process itself. So, you know, let's take Kirk Hammett, the Metallica guitarist. Um, you know, they've sold know, over 100 million albums. You know, he ends up on those lists of great metal guitarists all the time, all of that stuff, all the accolades. But his goal when he started playing guitar was he just wanted to get better and he wanted to be good enough that he could play with his friends and feel like he belonged. And that still basically is his goal now. He never set out to be a rock star. Trust me, he loves being a rock star and he will admit that, but that wasn't the goal. The process was really the focus. And so just he's just one example, but all of them focus on what do I need to do today that will make me a little bit better? And then what do I need to do tomorrow that will make me a little bit better? And it's, so it's almost like you forget that end goal and just say, what is my process? And if I have a process that is pretty much assured of me getting to a certain point in terms of skill or expertise or whatever, knowledge, whatever it may be, then I don't have to worry about the goal because I'm going to follow the process. And so the process thing is key. A lot of people say, I want to be X and they think about being X all the time, but they don't do the actual work that's involved that would give them the opportunity to be X. So, you know, we're, we're taught to, you know, pick a big, hairy, audacious goal and always have a laser-like focus on it and, and always keep that goal in mind. And I think sometimes that's actually a detriment because you measure yourself now where you are, which is just starting out maybe, against what that eventual goal looks like. And that, that gap is way too daunting and it's too big and you end up quitting. But if all you're focused on is, like say you want to run a marathon and today you're supposed to run a mile because you're just starting out. If you just focus on the fact that today I need to run a mile and you run that mile, you get to feel good because you accomplished what you set out to do today and that makes you happy. And that gives you enough motivation that tomorrow, whatever your process is you're supposed to do, you've got enough oomph that you can do what's tomorrow. And if you do it, you feel good about yourself, you feel happy, and that gives you that little extra motivation again. So instead of needing this huge dose of motivation to carry you the whole distance, you just need those little bits. And that's a very process-focused thing. When you work with people, you're focused on little steps that take someone from where they are to where they want to get. And you focus on the process, not on here's what you're going to become. Well, that sort of shifts us gears a little bit. You. I mean, you've written a lot about motivation. You're, an, I would argue, an, an expert or authority on the subject. And we, we've seen examples of how motivation is carried through in different aspects of your life and helped you become successful in those different aspects of your life. Can you define for us what is motivation? 
where and and talk to us a little about where it comes from and how does it affect the way we think and feel and act Ooh, wow um i'll try to go really brief with that people people tend to think that motivation is this like big dose or this lightning bolt that hits you and you've got all this oomph and willpower and determination and all this stuff that will carry you somewhere really motivation is just whatever small little bit of emotion that you need that will cause you to get started doing something that you are setting out to do. So if you're going to run a marathon, all the motivation you need is enough to get you out the door the first day to do whatever it is that you're setting out to do. It's not this big indefinable thing. And actually you can create motivation for something that you don't even care about. One year, it was stupid, but one year I decided I was going to do 100,000 pushups. So I broke that down. That's 274 a day. Um, I did 300 a day on average, just so that if I did miss a day, I had a little bit of a buffer. I didn't care about push-ups. Could have cared less about that goal, but it seemed interesting and it seemed like a way to prove something to myself. But after about a month, I actually kind of liked it, and and it was fun to write my number in on my spreadsheet every day. And I kind of got into it, even though it was a meaningless goal. And I was motivated to keep doing it because my process created that motivation. So the idea that you have to find your passion first before you start something, I think holds people back from ever doing anything worthwhile. You just have to be mildly interested and you have to be willing to start. And if you put in a little time and a little effort, you will improve. You'll get a little better. That'll make you feel good about yourself that will give you the motivation that you need. And then as you become more expert at it, you tend to find that you will develop a passion for it because we all like things that we are good at doing. So if you start out with something you don't even care about, but you get pretty good at it, because you've gotten deeper into it and learned more about it, you've met people that also do it, all those other things, you find that that becomes a huge interest in your life because you got good at it. You didn't have to have a passion first. And so I know tons of people that started things that they just did it. Either it was accidental or coincidental or desperation or whatever else it was that they didn't really care about, but they decided to do. And then woke up one day and said, you know, I really love this because they got good at it and because of all the stuff that comes with that. I think that's a great example. I was thinking about something that I've been doing recently um, in the winter, I, I, well, last year I decided I wanted to learn to skateboard, which is, uh, uh, I'm a little old for most people. It's, want to it's learn to harder skateboard. than it looks, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I picked it up, but I did in the first year at the, like in the winter of last year, I crashed my skateboard and messed up my hand. And for like six or seven, I guess probably about seven months, I couldn't do a push up, And so I got a little bit out of shape. Um, I learned to skateboard, but I got a little out of shape and I was trying to figure out how to lose the weight. And I was working out a ton once my hand started to heal, still not quite totally healed, but I can do pushups and lift weights again and do pull-ups, but I, I wasn't losing the weight. And I was talking to a friend of mine and she said, like it's it's your diet you you need to change like because we had fit uh we both have apple watches and we can share our fitness and she's like the amount of calories you burn in the day it's crazy it's something else like this is a math problem so i said you know she's right and so i, I decided i'm gonna make a really simple goal because I, like I, I need this to be achievable so i said for 90 days i'm gonna do an experiment I'm just going to say, I'm not going to eat grains. I'm not going to eat any sugary drinks. I'm not going to eat any sweets. Uh, I'm not going to 
eat cheese unless it's already on something. But just like really simple, I had a really simple framework that I decided I was going to use based on a little bit of research. And in the first 55 days, I lost 28 pounds. And so it's really simple. I mean, it's really funny. And I find that I've been applying these like 90-day goals in all kinds of aspects. This podcast, when we relaunched, we had a 90-day goal. Um, we're launching our video channel, and and uh, I brought somebody in to head that project. And we have 90-day goals, and like, and that actually came from another podcast uh, where a guy said he sets 90-day goals and then steps away and has like a personal retreat where he thinks about the next 90 days. And I found that just setting up these like simple constructs and focusing on the process because yeah, like two weeks in when the weight started dropping, I started feeling better about myself. And I think within the 90 days, I'll hit my ideal weight probably even a few days earlier. And uh, if not, even if I don't hit it, like I made so much progress, it really feels amazing. But that's a really, you bring up a really important point. The, when you start something new, like you said, a few weeks into it, you started to realize, wow, I'm losing the weight. The key when you start something new that's kind of hard is you have to commit to giving it at least a week and a half or two weeks to see how it turns out. So if you'd have done that for one day and stepped on the scale the next day, you're probably not going to see a difference. And you can decide to yourself, ah, this doesn't work and it sucks, so I'm going to quit. But you hadn't given yourself a chance to improve. And so if you go try to gain a skill, when you were trying to learn to skateboard, if you went out the first day and you measured yourself against what you hoped to be, you would have probably quit because like, ah, this is way harder than I thought it would be. But after a week or a week and a half, you saw some improvement, I'm sure. And you thought, okay, I'm still not great, but I'm getting there. And that, that time period is huge. Very few people learn to skateboard in their mid to late thirties, <laughs> and I, I was watching, I was watching YouTube videos of teenagers skateboarding to figure out how do I stop, how do I push, like, uh, but what I would do is I would just say, okay, I'm just gonna go around the block once a day, like that's it. I just want every day at some point I'm literally just gonna go around the block in New York City, right, and and that's it. And that was really like how I got started, and then over time, I started to go two blocks or go go down to the grocery store or go down to pick something up but that was really it it was just like a small commitment same small framework i'm just gonna go around the block every day yeah that's the same point i was making earlier you had that your goal that day was to go around the block and if you did it you got to feel good about it because that was what you set out to do and then tomorrow you do the same thing and after a week or a week and a half you were a little better at it. You were either faster or didn't fall down as much or didn't feel as wobbly, whatever it may be, you know, didn't run into people before you stopped, whatever that might be. That felt good too, because like, okay, I can see where this is working. But if you had only done it for a day or two, you wouldn't have made the gains and you would have thought it's not working and you would have quit. Or you would have looked for some shortcut or some way to hack your way to success or whatever. So the key to anything new that's hard is you have to say to yourself, I'm going to follow this process and I'm going to do it for at least a couple of weeks. And if I get to the end of the two weeks and I haven't made any improvement and I hate this or whatever it may be, I'll give myself permission to quit. But until then, I'm not. And if you do that, you'll get over that beginner hump. And then you can actually make a real decision about whether it works for you or not, whether you want to keep going. It's like the whole thing about getting over procrastination. There's a, I think one of the co-founders of Pinterest he said if he feels like he's procrastinating, he just says, okay, I will start this and I'll do it for five minutes and only five minutes. And if I want to quit after five minutes, I can. 
But by the time five minutes gets there, you've gotten over whatever that little mental hurdle was and you're into it and you've quote unquote broken a sweat and then you can keep rolling. And it's the same thing with starting something new that's hard to do. You have to commit to that. And, and quite frankly, if you can't commit to a couple weeks, like with you, let's say you decided that for two weeks, I'm going to go around the block on my skateboard every day. If you can't commit to that, then you probably don't want to learn to skateboard. <laughs> so don't even try if you can't commit. I think that's a great point. Right? I really like these 90 day goals, but I, I mean, even two weeks is a great. Well, you can do a 90, but you can say, okay, I'm planning for 90, but I will not reevaluate my process and I will not quit for sure until at least two weeks. I'm going to give myself that long and then I will see. And invariably you'll get to the end of the two weeks and you'll say, you know what? This is working. And it makes you feel better about the 90 days and it makes the 90 days not feel so long because now you've seen that it works. And now you look forward to what other improvements you will make as opposed to sitting there thinking, God, this is so hard. And that's all you think about. Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I'm not really attached to the numbers. If somebody's listening to this, you gotta figure out whatever numbers work work for you. Um, it made me think we had interviewed somebody who wrote a book on dopamine and how dopamine uh, affects us. And on that podcast, I talked about how in the winter, when I was hurt and I couldn't really do anything, I would I would get these like dopamine hits from like the idea of going to eat a donut or eating a donut, and and then and now I'm getting the same uh, dopamine hits like when I'm uh, as I step on the scale, right? Like, uh, and he described dopamine as sort of from my memory like the motivational chemical, um, which is really sort of interesting. Well, what are some of the other big myths about motivation? Um, well, we talked about the whole idea of the the big focusing on the goal. Um, and then I talked about the fact that you don't need the lightning bolt <clears throat> up front. Um, since we're, we're probably almost out of time, I'll, I'll leave you with a practical um, motivational or anti-motivation strategy, if you want to call it that. Um, there was a study done where people wanted to, they, they self-identified a new habit that they wanted to start. And so the researchers gave that they split them into two groups and the researchers gave them two coping strategies. One group was told to say, if like, say it's you and you decided you weren't going to eat donuts because that wasn't on your diet and you wanted to eat one, you were told to say, ah, I can't eat a donut. And the other group was taught to say, I don't eat donuts. Uh, the people that were told to say, I can't gave in ooh, like 60% of the time. And the people that were told to say, I don't gave in closer to 30% of the time. So the, I don't was powerful. So hold that thought. Then they took it a step farther and did an experiment where there was a long-term health and fitness goal that people were supposed to work towards. It was like eight weeks, split them into three groups. They had an, I don't group and I can't group. And then a group that got no coping strategy at all. And at the end of that period of time, the people that had no coping strategy, three out of 10 of them stuck to the program. One out of 10 of the I can't people stuck to the program and eight out of 10 of the I don'ts managed to do it. And the reason for that is I can't. If you say to yourself, I can't have a donut, <clears throat> what you've done is really open up a negotiation in your mind. So you can say, well, I can't have a donut. But, <clears throat> you know, if I decided I'll go for a run later, then that'll burn those calories or you know, tomorrow I'll eat a little healthier and I'll, you know, I'll cut my calories and you end up having to use willpower to force yourself not to eat the donut. Whereas if you say, I don't, 
that's an identity statement. That's a, I don't do those things. It's not a negotiation, it's who you are. And when something is who you are, it's much easier to do. Uh, anybody that's listening that has kids, do you have to wake up in the morning and say, all right, I really need to make sure that today I, you know, I can't neglect my kids. Well, no, you don't neglect your kids because you are a parent. If you have been running for a long time, you don't think in terms of, wow, I can't miss my workout today. You don't miss workouts because you are a runner. And so the I don't coping strategy is huge for helping you stick with things when you need a little bit of willpower because it keeps you from having to exercise that choice willpower, which is the hardest thing in the world. So hopefully that makes sense, but, but it works really well. If you have something that you want to stick to, whenever you feel yourself flagging, just say, you know, I don't. If you're on a diet, I don't eat cake. Not I can't have a piece of cake because, well, you could, because if you think about it, you can figure out a way. But if you don't, then you just don't, and it's okay, and you move on because you are a person who is trying to lose weight, and people trying to lose weight don't eat an extra piece of cake. Jeff, we explored a lot about your sort of your personal journey and some of the things that probably impacted and drove you towards the subject of motivation and motivated you. And I don't, Do you have any last tips for the people who are listening to this if they're trying to figure out their own life path and find clarity and get to where they want to go? Uh, probably the biggest thing would be two things. One, if you think about people who have succeeded either in just period or in some field that you are really interested in and you would like to emulate that success, realize that they do not have some special something, whatever that may be, that you don't have. They don't necessarily have, you know, a better education or certain friends or more money or more. They didn't have those advantages or if they did, that really didn't matter. They just worked hard and worked smart and put a bunch of other things aside that didn't matter in their life to focus on achieving whatever it was they wanted to achieve. And that's a really empowering thought because if, if you realize that people who have done incredible things are really not at their core different from you, that means you can do that too. And you don't have to have, there are no excuses and there are no special things that they got. And you can go and do that too. You just have to be smart and work hard and gain your talent and stay the course. So that one is huge. And then the other one is whatever path you are on now, that feels like the only path you can be on. And that was definitely me when I worked in manufacturing. And I got to a really good point in that, but it wasn't fulfilling or as fulfilling as it could be. Didn't make me as happy as other things could. And, and quite frankly, has not, was not as financially rewarding as what I have found my way into doing now through a lot of work. And so if you have other things that you want to do, go explore them. You know, instead of spending your me time on TV or whatever else it may be, you know, turn your me time into, I want to explore what might make me happier and more fulfilled in my life somewhere down the road. That's the best me time of all that you can spend because it's me time that makes you feel better about yourself. And really that's all we, all we want at the end of the day is to be able to sit back and feel happy about our lives and happy about who we are and happy about how things are going and to see that there is some light that we are trying to reach at the end of some tunnel. That's really what makes you happy. And so spend your time on that because that's the very best investment that you can make. 
Jeff, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. If you're listening to this and you want to learn more about Jeff and some of the things that he's doing, we're going to post some links on the Craft Christmas website and within the description of the podcast so that you can learn about him more easily. And hopefully we can get you to come back uh, on the show sometime soon and talk about some of these other things that we didn't get to today. Happy to do so. It was great. Thanks. It's dating coach Chris Thoney here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.